Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We want to welcome you to AccessibleWorld.org, uh, to our auditorium, and we have our special program series, and we welcome back our good friend Ira Fistel to do, I think it is part three on the works of Mark Twain, and he's going to discuss Huckleberry Finn. The date is August 10th, uh, 2010. And without further ado, I give the microphone or telephone over to Ira Fistel. Ira, you're on. Well, thank you very much, Bob. Um, I want to start with a quote from Ernest Hemingway. Hemingway uh, wrote in The Green Hills of Africa, Chapter 1, and this is published in 1935 by Scribner's, he wrote the following, quote, All modern American literature comes from one book by Mark Twain called Huckleberry Finn. If you read it, you must stop where the nigger gem is stolen from the boys. And that is what he says there. Uh, it's not quite right, so I put sick, but anyway, it's that is the real end. It is just cheating. But it's the best book we've had. All American writing comes from that. There was nothing before. There has been nothing as good since. That's what Ernest Hemingway wrote about uh, Huckleberry Finn. I agree with him that it is uh, the great novel, the great American novel. However, I do not agree that the quote, the rest is just cheating. And I think one of the things I'm going to be talking about in the course of this discussion is that Huckleberry Finn is actually a far better book than even many critics have realized. In fact, it's so good that I, I really honestly think that it comes within perhaps one line of being a perfect work of art. It's that good. A uh, little bit about the background of the book before we do anything else. Uh, Twain finished Tom Sawyer in the summer of 1875, and he immediately began writing the next, uh, the, the next chapters, which uh, begin Huckleberry Finn. He also wrote to William Dean Howells, who was his literary pal, um, and he said, you know, I think I made a mistake when I, told Huck, uh, when I told Tom Sawyer in the third person. And in Huckleberry Finn, he uses the first person narration. Huck himself narrates the book, tells us the story. Now, this makes a big difference in literature, whether you're, you're writing in the first person or the third. Uh, there are lots of things that writers have to consider. And one is, what is the best way for me to get my story across to the, to the readers? In Tom Sawyer, there is a narrator, and the narrator, of course, is uh, Samuel Clemens' voice himself, Mark Twain's voice, uh, although we don't hear it, you know, he doesn't say so. But uh, it interrupts the intensity of the story because the third-person narrator, of course, is not one of the characters. And we see the story from the outside, from the, uh, you know, the all-knowing and all-seeing third person, but we don't get inside the character's head that way. With first-person narration, the big advantage is that you can hear the thoughts, or we can read the thoughts of the central character who's who is uh, telling the story. And that gives you a closeness to the main character that you can never get in third-person narration. It also means that we hear the voices of the characters speaking 
to a greater extent than you do when it's interrupted by the third-person narrator. There was a lot of great dialogue in Tom Sawyer. And in fact, uh, it probably had the best dialogue of any American novel at the time it was written, in 1875. But in Huckleberry Finn, because of the first-person narration, the dialogue is even more uh, completely delivered and in, in such a dramatic way that, as I'll point out a little bit later, you have characters who talk themselves into immortality. Uh, just by We don't see them. We don't know what they look like. We don't know anything about them. But they tell us everything we need to know about them in the way they speak and what they say. The big disadvantage of first-person narration is that the author cannot create any scene at which the narrator is not present. Uh, so you can't, for example, jump from what Huck is doing at a particular moment to what, say, uh, Jim is doing at the same time if they're not together. But Twain, I think, overcame that problem in this book, and I think there's no doubt that choosing the first-person narration style and coupling it with his tremendous knowledge of vernacular speech and the, you know, the look and feel of the American frontier in the 1840s uh, is one of the main reasons why this book is superior to Tom Sawyer and why, in fact, it's superior to almost anything else he ever wrote. Pretty close. Okay, now, Hemingway talked about uh, all of American literature coming from one book, Huckleberry Finn. I'm going to go further than that, and I'm going to say that I consider Huckleberry Finn the great American novel. You know, you don't have to drop out of school and uh, work 40 years to produce the great American novel. It's already been done. <laughs> it was done in 1885 by Samuel Clemens, Mark Twain. Why is it the great American novel? Well, there are three aspects to that. Great, American, and novel. Let's start with the third first. What is a novel? Now, today, uh, we call any long work of fiction uh, written in prose a novel. But that wasn't the original real meaning of the word novel. Long, long prose fiction originally was classified in two ways, as a novel or as a romance. A romance was just any story, long prose fiction story, written to entertain the reader with no further object in mind. A novel, on the other hand, was a story, long prose fiction, in which the story explores the manners and mores of a society or segment of society, by usually by bringing in a character from outside that, that uh, milieu and having him explain it and contrast it with his own. Classic example of this, for example, would be Jonathan Swift's Gulliver's Travels. Uh, Gulliver is the outsider in Lilliput and in Brobdingnag and all the other places he goes, and he examines these other societies and compares them. And uh, of course, in the case of um, uh, what's the name, Brob, the Willie, the Willie. Uh, well, I'm sorry, uh, the Winnies. Uh, they are far superior to his own yahoos. Uh, the Winnies are the horses, of course, and he finds horses far superior to his own uh, human society. But that's what a real novel is. 
a novel is a long prose fiction that explores and explains the manners and mores of a society or segment of society. And Huckleberry Finn, by that tr tradition, is a true novel. The book is about the Western society of America, Western part of America, particularly, in the period uh, within 20 years or so before the Civil War. The novel is not set specifically in a year, but we know that it's before the end of slavery, of course, and Huck is um, about, we can, we can assume it's about 1840 to about 1845 in that period. Uh, it is also has impacts for, on the broader society, not only the West, but it's particularly concerned with life on the Mississippi River, on the Mississippi Valley. So uh, it, that segment of society in, in particular. So that's why it's a great novel. Why is it American? Well, not only is it set in the United States and deals with the particular social problems of the United States at that time, um, one of the greatest of which, of course, was slavery. Uh, Langston Hughes, the poet, wrote that if, uh, I can't remember what he said exactly, but he said something like uh, Mark Twain uh, really demolishes slavery here. Well, the catch to that was he wrote the book in 1885. Slavery was 20 years in the past already. Why then did he write a book about slavery when uh, slavery was already destroyed? Well, the answer is because it's not about slavery. It's about slavery to a degree. But the book has much more to it than that. It talks about eternal qualities, things that, that don't change easily, that are expressed in all sorts of social institutions and all sorts of personalities. And that's another reason why the book is so topical today. It's so, uh, so vital today. Because the things that Mark Twain discusses in this book and criticizes and raises before us to see are things that haven't changed. They're the attitudes uh, that, and the well, unwillingness to see, unwillingness to understand that made slavery possible and that makes today uh, not only racism and sexism, whatever, ever, but all these huge problems that we have as human beings that we've had as human beings ever since there have been human beings, and they haven't changed. Have uh, people gotten smarter? Have people gotten... Um, kinder? Have people gotten wiser? Have we improved? Have we gone anywhere? Uh, Mark Twain's novels, and particularly Huckleberry Finn, raise those questions. So it is an American novel also in the sense that not only does it deal with America uh, as a setting and with American, the, the fundamental American problems, but it is also a novel that couldn't have been written by anybody but an American and not by any American. And it could only have been written by somebody of great, uh, great depth and great insight who was familiar with the common people of America at the time that he was writing. Um, and Twain's ear for vernacular America speech is totally unmatched by anybody, anytime, anywhere. I can't think of anybody who even comes close except maybe William Faulkner. Uh, and maybe Stephen Crane once in a while. But of all great American authors, Twain had a fabulous ear for language and for reproducing common speech. And we'll find that as we go through the novel. And finally, 
Why is it great? What makes a novel great? Well, partly it's the way the book is written. Uh, it's partly the characters in the book. It's partly the messages in the book. And it is partly the structure of the book. And those are all things we're going to be talking about tonight. Why is it great? Structure, satire, irony, humor, use of language, economy of means, ultimate meaning of the book. These are all, all aspects of why Huckleberry Finn is the great American novel. Why Huckleberry, for example? This is, a, this is something that I found out quite by accident. Uh, I've never seen anybody write about it, for that matter. Why is the central character called Huckleberry Finn? He could have chosen any hundreds of different names. But when he was writing Tom Sawyer, uh, he created Tom's friend and called him Huckleberry Finn. Well, it seems, and I read this someplace and I can't tell you where, that in the 19th century... Uh, we have an expression today, we say, oh, shucks, right? Uh, not very important, minor, minor incident, whatever. Well, in the 19th century, Americans used the phrase huckleberry for something that we today would call shucks. They're saying, oh, shucks, they'd say, oh, huckleberries. Huckleberries were, huckleberry meant something insignificant, unimportant, uh, trivial, not, not something to get excited about. And I say, and I'm sure, that uh, when Mark Twain created Huckleberry Finn, he originally may have intended to use the word in the sense that it was commonly used, that Huckleberry was unimportant. But in the end of Tom Sawyer, by the end of Tom Sawyer, he certainly becomes much more important. And when we get to this novel, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, Huckleberry Finn's name may mean he's not important, but it's ironic in that he is vitally important, and he is the most important character, not only in this book, perhaps one of the very most important characters in all of American literature. So I think Huckleberry is an ironic term, an ironic name. What do we mean by irony? We've got to define some terms here. What, do, what is irony? I think the best way to describe irony is you think you're going you, you think you know where you're going, you think you know what you're going to get, and then the author pulls a twist on you at the end. And, and what you get is the opposite of what you were led to expect. Mark Twain was a great master of irony, as with the other two great techniques, humor and satire, which we'll get to in a minute. Uh, but Twain was a great ironic writer. Perhaps his most classic use of irony is in Puddinhead Wilson, which he wrote mm, 10 or 11 years later than Huckleberry Finn. But uh, there is plenty of irony in Huckleberry Finn. Frustration, a reversal of expectations. You think you're going to get one thing, and what you get is the opposite. Irony. Humor. Well, we all know what humor is, don't we? Uh, but there are different kinds of humor. Some humor is laugh-out-loud funny. Uh, some humor is not. Mark Twain uses all sorts of humor in his works. But there are parts of Huckleberry Finn where I dare you to read the book out loud and not laugh. Uh, he was such a terrific, had such a terrific sense of humor, which he had all his life, got it from his mother, um, that he was able to create 
in a novel which is of extreme heavy content, it's also a classic laugh-out-loud masterpiece of humor. Humor was his second great technique, irony, humor, and then the third. And the third great technique, which he's also in all of his books, and including this one, is satire. Now, satire is a word that's thrown around a lot by people, including professors, who don't seem to know what it really means. And I'm going to give you a definition of satire that I learned at the University of Chicago. When I took a course in satire from Professor Ned Rosenheim, who is now dead, but uh, was a great teacher and a great guy, he gave a definition of satire that not only makes sense, but is specific. You can recognize it whenever you see it. Satire is the art of telling a story or making a point by using an indirect object of attack instead of attacking something obvious, using an indirect object and letting the reader make the connection between what you say you're talking about and what you're really pointing out. That is satire, the art of attack through use of indirect object. Classic example, the, the classic satire in all of, literature, all of uh, English language literature is Jonathan Swift's uh, A Modest Proposal, which he wrote in the 18th century. Uh, his point was that the English landlords were responsible for the starvation of people in Ireland. But he doesn't write against the English landlords particularly. That's not how he approaches it. He says... Uh, the obvious solution, that there's too many people in Ireland and there's not enough food, the obvious solution is to eat Irish babies. Now, he didn't really mean that we should eat Irish babies. What he meant was we should think about why there is no food in Ireland and make the connection between the starvation of Irish people and the fact that the English landlords were taking all the food out of Ireland and leaving nothing for the Irish to eat. That's why uh, satire is so devastating, because it involves the reader in the process of the attack. The reader has to make the connection between what the author seems to be doing and what he is really attacking. The big problem with satire is, what if the audience doesn't get it? What if the audience misses the direct object and doesn't see that there's a satire going on? Then one of two things can happen. The audience can be bored and stop reading the book, or the audience can go on reading the book and miss the point, but may still enjoy the book because it's so good. And I think that's true in a great measure of some of Mark Twain's work. Not everybody who reads Mark Twain gets the message. In fact, a lot of people don't, and in particularly in a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court, which I think is the greatest satire any American ever wrote. Uh, people, including well-known professors, missed the point. They didn't get it. They didn't see it. And that's one reason why you get so much confusion about Connecticut Yankee. But we're not going to talk about Connecticut Yankee today. We're going to talk about uh, Huckleberry Finn. And Huckleberry Finn also employs satire. Now, why did Twain have to use satire, irony, and humor to make his books 
to, uh, to make his books. Well, you've got to think about who was buying books in the United States of America in the 1880s. Most people who read in those days, who read fiction, were either women or very highly educated professors and clergymen. The ordinary average American male was not very literary, literary uh, and not inclined to read books. He wasn't supposed to. American society at that time uh, was based on the premise that the, the sex roles, the gender roles, were very hard and fast fixed. Men went out in the wild, wild world and made money and brought home food and made a home. Women cultured their men, taught their men, told their men what was good and what was bad. Uh, it was the woman's job to, quote, civilize, unquote, the house, and the man's job to bring home the money. So you had very few educated uh, readers to read Mark Twain's books, because most women at that time did not have a lot of education. So, Twain's problem was, how do you write a book of social criticism and get the message across and still have people who are the same class of people that you're criticizing buy the book? And that is how he did it. He used the techniques of irony, humor, and satire, and some people who read his books got it, but lots of people read his books and laughed their heads off and didn't realize at all why he was such a great writer and what he was doing. This is another reason why people today, even today, think of Mark Twain as a kid's writer, because they don't know what's hidden in these books. And in, in uh, Huckleberry Finn, there is satire, there is irony, and there is absolutely devastatingly funny humor. So we'll get to all those things as we talk about the book. Uh, I realize I've been talking for about 25 minutes now, and I haven't gotten to the book yet. <laughs> well, <laughs> I warned you, uh, I could sit down and start talking about Mark Twain and talking about Huckleberry Finn particularly, and literally talk for hours, um, because there's that much to say. All right, let's get to the book. The first thing you find when you open the book, the very first thing you find is, after the uh, you know the title page, is notice. Notice. The notice comes before the table of contents. Whatever edition in, you'll find this. Persons attempting to find a motive in this narrative will be prosecuted. Persons attempting to find a moral in it will be banished. Persons attempting to find a plot in it will be shot. By order of the author, per GG, Chief of Ordnance. What the heck is that? By order of the author, persons attempting to find a motive in the narrative will be prosecuted. Persons attempting to find a moral will be banished. Persons attempting to find a plot will be shot. Does that make sense? All right, now, people, how, what did you think of the notice? Did you just go right over it and not pay any attention to it? Hello, somebody talk. I thought that uh, Mark Twain was poking fun, you know, at, at us in some way, but I didn't know. 
Well, uh, <laughs> if anybody you, I else, Bonnie? I think he yeah, was saying ahead. that he was on to us, that uh, he knew that we would do exactly that, try to find those things, and and no matter what he said, we would do it anyway. That's kind of what I was thinking, too, is that people well, always tend to Well, you're sort of on the track. You're sort of on the track. Um, why did he put it there? Why was it so important to him to, to put this here before he even has the first word of the novel? He was setting us up. For what? For for all that was coming later. All, all those three things, right? All right. What's he setting us up for? He was leading. He was leading us in a direction. He was saying, uh, he was he was he was really kind of playing with us, saying, "I don't want you to really think about those things, and and uh, I'll do all these things." But he but in a way, he was really saying, he was really saying, uh, really in jest. That's what this is all about. Yeah, he okay. was going to make now you fight against it. it. Now you're yeah. getting. Am I getting there? This is an this is a beautiful piece of irony. What he's telling you is that there is a moral and a motive yeah. and a plot in yeah. this book. That's what I think. look for it. Look for it. It's here. This is not Tom Sawyer. This is not a kids' book. This is not uh, something that you uh, just breeze through without thinking about. But being the genius that he was. He phrased it in terms that make you wonder, what's this all about? Make you think. It's sort of like a song when somebody tells you not to think of a certain song, then it's immediately in your head. In your head. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yep. So that's number one. The notice is ironic. It's telling you to look for exactly what he says you'll be shot or banished for finding. Plot, moral, and motive. Three things. Okay. Um, one more on the same page or next page, you'll find another note. It's called explanatory. It says, in this book, a number of dialects are used. To wit, the Missouri Negro dialect, the extremist form of the backwoods southwestern dialect, an ordinary Pike County dialect, and four modified varieties of the last. The shadings have not been done in a haphazard fashion or by guesswork, but painstakingly and with the trustworthy guidance and support of personal familiarity with these several forms of speech. Now comes the kicker. I make this explanation for the reason that without it, many readers would suppose that all these characters were trying to talk alike and not succeeding. <laughs> the man is just, he's just wonderful. Here he is telling you how hard he worked to reproduce these speech patterns, these different dialects. And then he says, well, I have to tell you this because uh, you have to understand that I really, was, you know, I really was meant this. Uh, you might have thought I was trying to make them all talk alike and uh, failed, but I didn't really. So now I, have have a question. I, have, yeah. I have a question, Ira. Why, yeah. why would he think, uh, obviously, if, if you take the two extremes, uh, Western, Western dialect and the Missouri Negro dialect, they're not alike at all. Why would he think that? Why would he try to tell us they are? No, but he's trying. To, that's a joke. That's the ironic okay. thing to make you to make you take seriously the fact that he's worked so hard to make these speeches different. Oh, I believe he had to work hard to do that. I do. Oh, I already, I already believe that. I well, but I'm telling you, I think you know, he had the greatest ear for reproducing vernacular speech that anybody has ever had in American literature. Not even close. 
And here, all he's trying to tell you is, look out, because I did this deliberately. These people do not talk alike. And pay attention, so, and you, maybe you'll see the difference. Oh, my. But most, you know, you, you're talking about readers. Remember who he's selling to. He's yeah. selling to largely poorly educated uh, lady readers who uh, probably never heard a word of either of these, any of these dialects. If they were in, uh, say, someplace like, uh, oh, say, Erie, Pennsylvania, or uh, <laughs> or Cincinnati, Ohio, maybe. Well, maybe Cincinnati isn't a good example, but Cleveland, Ohio, or uh, Boston, or something. Nobody ever heard that kind of speech. Yeah. And in fact, uh, within a month of the publication of Huckleberry Finn, the uh, library in Concord, Massachusetts, banned the book from the shelves because they said it was coarse and uh, rough and unfit for uh, sophisticated people to read. You know what Mark Twain's re uh, re reply to that was? <laughs> Can you imagine? He loved it. It meant he sold a lot more copies. <laughs> Ban the books and more people buy it. So anyway, all right, so that's before we even get to the book. So notice a great warning to you that this book is dangerous. Uh, in my written... Uh, my writing about this, I once uh, cited a uh, line from Dr. Seuss. Anybody here uh, read Dr. Seuss? You know Dr. Seuss, uh, the kids' author, who wrote a no, book I called haven't. He wrote a book called Fox and Socks, which oh, is yeah. one tongue twister after another. And at the beginning of the book, he says, "Warning: This book is dangerous." <laughs> Well, that's what Mark Twain does here. All right. How does the book begin? The book starts uh, with chapter one, I discover Moses and the bulrushers. And the first lines of the book are, you don't know about me without you've read a book by the name of The Adventures of Tom Sawyer. But that ain't no matter. That book was made by Mr. Mark Twain, and he told the truth, mainly. There was things which he stretched, but mainly he told the truth. That's nothing. I never seen anybody but lied one time or another. Without it was Aunt Polly or the widow or maybe Mary. Aunt Polly, that's Tom's Aunt Polly she is, and Mary, and the widow Douglas. It's all told about in that book, which is mostly a true book, with some stretches, as I said before. Now, the way that book winds up is this, and here we have the beginning of the novel. What is the first thing, the first uh, part of Huckleberry Finn? Um, let's get to this. No, we're talking about structure. What is the large structure of Huckleberry Finn? When you read the book, what do you look for? Look for the major parts. How do the parts fit together? Where does one part end and the next part begin? What are the subsections within the larger parts? This is called reading for structure. And this is the key, the key to understanding not only literature, but any written work. If you can discover the structure, find the joints, find the movement from one place to another, see how the parts relate to each other, you are really reading the book. If you just sit there and skim the words, you're not getting, well, three-quarters of what's in the book. 
And I don't know why this isn't taught more. I guess people just don't know about it. But uh, I was lucky enough to go to the University of Chicago, which is the world's great, greatest university, far and away. The only place I know of that teaches this. And the um, difference, when you read for structure, when you acquire that technique, not only do you get much more, you understand much more, but you don't forget it because it's much easier to remember something that you have really sifted through and really got in your brain. And it works for uh, literature. It works for art. It works for music. It works for any human creation, really. But we're talking today about literary structure in particular. All right, so I'm challenging my audience right now. When you read this book, did you see any significant divisions? Parts, large parts, smaller parts. Uh, you can give me an answer if, uh, on a small basis. What's the first small subsection at three chapters long? What does it do? What, is, what, what does it contain? Or you can give me a larger uh, view. Um, how many sections are there, over, you know, large sections in the novel? There are 43 chapters in this novel. Did anybody count them? Anybody look and see how many there are and where they divide? This is real reading. When you can do this, you can do anything. This is how I got through college and law school and God knows what, a graduate school, and never worked more than three hours a day and uh, was able to read something once and remember it where other people were reading it ten times and not knowing what was in it because they didn't know how to read for structure. So, uh, anybody floored by this? No, well, there were some sections. I mean, before he uh, sort of got kidnapped or waylaid by his father, and then the section with his father, and then when he left his father, and then I would guess when they picked up the king and the duke. And then, that's a, that's yeah. a long way later, but yeah. Well, that's yeah. later, yeah. And then after uh, that, the section with the Aunt Sally. Mm -hmm. I could probably that's take a more good. That's I'm good. Sure, but, uh. That's good. The section that starts with Huck's arrival in uh, Louisiana in Chapter 32 is the beginning of the third section of Huckleberry Finn. Now, how do we know that this is a whole section? Well, in this book, there are three great parts. Where is each part set? What's the, where is the first part of the book set, the whole first part? in and around the town of St. Petersburg, right? Right, right. Yes. What's the middle section of the book? When Huck and Jim get on the raft yeah. and leave St. Petersburg altogether. Mm -hmm. the, the river journey. The river. The river journey is the yeah. second part of the book. It extends from chapter 12 through chapter 30, 31. 20 chapters. And then the last part is the, as you pointed out, is the uh, section at the Phelps Plantation in Louisiana. Okay, now, how many chapters are in the first section? How many chapters are there in the same uh, section? I thought about 12, right? You're close. Very close. 11. Okay. They leave at the end of chapter 11. Okay. Okay. How many chapters are there in the middle section? I've already said it. Twenty. 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 
How many is that? 1131. 31. How many chapters in the uh, Phelps Plantation segment? 11 or 12? Well, you're right, it's 11. Oh, Plus, okay. the 43rd chapter is just a, the closing yeah. coda. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's true. All right. Now, what is the suggestion? You've got 11, 20, 11. Is that not a perfect structure? Yeah, it is. The center is the center section is twice as long as the first and second together. Mm-hmm. The first and uh, first and third rather the first, first and third, and third together. Third. A perfectly balanced book. Wow. The beginning and the the ending are the same length, eleven chapters, and the center section is about twice as long as the first and uh, the third combined. You think that's by accident? No. You think the author just. Uh, put the chapter divisions there because he felt like it? There's a reason for this. There's a, uh, the reason for it is that the, the book is in balance. You know where the, the sections break. They are broken and, and clearly identified by where they take place, and they are a perfect length relative to each other. Now, you don't find that kind of perfection in most books. But Mark Twain did it here. Now, one of the ways he did it was it took him eight years to write. Huckleberry said he started in 1875. He didn't finish the manuscript till the end of 1883. And then he spent another year going over the manuscript, polishing it, shortening it, uh, changing it, correcting it. So the book wasn't published for another year after that. So altogether, it took him between 1875 when he started it and the end of 1884, when it was published in Britain, and the beginning of 1885, when it was published in the United States, took him nine years of work to do this book on and off. So he had plenty of time to work on it and to improve it, and that's why it came out uh, as, such a, as such a tremendous masterpiece, because he took his time with it. Mark Twain had a way of writing. He'd write in spurts. He wrote the 15, first 15 chapters of Huckleberry Finn and then stopped. And at the end of chapter 15, he laid off for a couple of years before he did anything else. Then he came back and wrote some more. And then about 1880 or 81, he stopped writing again. And he didn't come back to it again until 1882. And then he wrote for a year and a half at a stretch. And then he stopped and he came to the end of the manuscript. And he spent a whole year just going over it and improving it. This was not a tossed-together hash. This was a very carefully thought out, planned, and well-planned, and well-executed plan. And the structure tells you that right from the beginning. Okay, let's concentrate on the first 11 chapters, the St. Petersburg section, right? Okay. Can you find subsections within this? Can you look at, look at the first 11 chapters, and can you find me subsections within that? And where are the breaks? Hmm. Look at the chapter titles. Hmm. One good way of doing it is looking at the chapter titles. What's the title of the first chapter? Do you have chapter titles here? I don't have it in front of me. I'm sorry. It's about Moses and the bulrushes. Moses and the bulrushes, yeah. Right. What's the second chapter? I don't have them in front of me either. I'm sorry. Okay. It's called Our Gang's Dark Oath. The third chapter is, We Ambuscade the Arabs. Yes. Okay. Okay. 
That's now, my subsection. What is happening in these chapters? What is what is Huck's situation? He Remember me and Tom Sawyer. Huck and okay. Tom found twelve thousand dollars at mm -hmm. the haunted house, and each of them has six thousand dollars, which is a right. fortune in eighteen thirty-five or eighteen forty. Mm -hmm. Okay, they're a couple of real rich kids. Mm -hmm. All right, but Huck has no parents. His father is run, he's gone away, and he isn't much of a father anyway. His mother is never referred to. She's presumably died in childbirth. Uh, so he's really um, an orphan. Okay? So who takes him in at the end of the first book, at the end of Tom Sawyer? Widow Douglas. And the widow. Widow Douglas. And mm -hmm. it said on page two, the widow Douglas, she took me in for her son and allowed she would civilize me. S-I-V-I-L-I-Z-E. Remember <laughs> that word. But it was rough living in the house all the time, considering how dismal, regular, and decent the widow was in all her ways. So when I couldn't stand it no longer, I lit out. I got into my old rags and my sugar hogs head again, and I was free and satisfied. But Tom Sawyer, he hunted me up. He said he was going to start a band of robbers, and I might join if I'd go back to the widow and be respectable. So I went back. Tom Sawyer is playing... Robbers and cops again. Not cops, but just robbers. He wants to be playing the robber. However, in order to join Tom Sawyer's gang of robbers, Huck has to be respectable. He has to live with the Widow Douglas. Since when is social status a requirement for being a criminal? <laughs> but in Tom Sawyer's world, he wouldn't think, couldn't think, of associating too closely with Huck because Huck's an outcast. Tom Sawyer is the uh, sort of like the, the leading boy in the town. But he is part of the town, and he is never going to be a real robber. He's always just playing. Tom Sawyer is always playing. And he's always playing and doing something to give himself fun or to give himself status with somebody else or to do something that will engrandize himself. You know, Tom, we talked about in the last book is not a particularly nice person. No. Although it's easy to miss. Okay, so in the first three chapters, who's running things in the first three chapters? Tom. Tom. Yeah. He has the gang, and he says, we're going to go uh, uh, take a dark oath, and we're going to uh, we do nothing but robbery and murder. <laughs> and then we ambuscade the Arabs. Well, that was supposed to be uh, a bunch of... Uh, Wizards and whatever, with all kinds, of, but it really turned out to be a Sunday school picnic. Yeah. <laughs> so the first three chapters are really a, a kind of a, a rewriting of Tom Sawyer, in a sense, uh, because Tom runs the thing, and this is the bridge that connects the book to Tom Sawyer. For readers who bought Tom Sawyer, here's the way Twain gets them to start reading Uncle Bernie Finn. We got a little bit more of Tom Sawyer here. But, you get a little bit deeper, is Huck happy living in the Widow Douglas's house? No. Is he happy with Tom and his gang? No. No. Well, uh, he, I, I don't he think realizes that Tom is just uh, is a lot of hokum. Yeah. Yep. And, and Huck is practical. Huck is not romantic. He doesn't, he doesn't make believe, whatever. Okay, and then also, he has the problem with praying. Okay, 
If a body can get it, this is chapter three. We have escaped the Arabs. I got a good going over in the morning from old Miss Watson. I cut on my clothes, but little she didn't scold, etc., etc. But Miss Watson, she took me in the closet and prayed, but nothing come of it. She told me to pray every day. Whatever I asked for, I'd get it. But it weren't so. I tried it. Once I got a fish line, but no hooks. Weren't any good to me without hooks. I tried for the hooks three or four times, but somehow I couldn't make it work. Bye-bye one day, I asked Miss Watson to try for me. She said I was a fool. She never told me why. I couldn't make it out no way. I sat down one time back in the woods and had a long think about it. Huck thinks. First thing that's different about Huck. I says to myself, if a body can get anything they pray for, why don't Deacon Wynn get back the money he lost on pork? Why can't the widow get back her silver snuff box that was stole? Why can't Miss Watson fat up? No, says I to myself, ain't nothing in it. I went and told the widow about that, and she said a body could get things by praying for it, but what they could get was spiritual gifts. Now, this was too many for me, but she told me what she meant. I must help other people and do everything I could for other people and look out for them all the time and never think about myself. This was including Miss Watson, as I took it. I went out in the woods <laughs> and turned it over in my mind a long time, but I couldn't see no advantage in it except for the other people. So last I reckoned I wouldn't worry about it no more, but just let it go. All right, this is Huck's first experience with prayer. And the book is full of things like this. Uh, things that, that ordinary people just take for granted and don't think about. Huck actually thinks. Now remember, he's a boy of about maybe 13, and he doesn't think all that deeply all the time. But what's different about Huck from Tom is that Tom doesn't ever think about anybody else. Remember uh, Tom Sawyer? When the Aunt Polly says, he says, oh, I just didn't think. Oh, boy, you never think, says Aunt Polly. You never think of anything but your own selfishness. And is Mark Twain just talking about Tom? Is Mark Twain no. just talking about Huck? How many no. of us think today? <laughs> How many of us think about other people? So many of us do, but a whole lot of us don't. And sometimes we should and we don't. And sometimes we, you know, well, we do and we think wrong about it. We think of prayer as a way to get fish hooks. <laughs> That's not what it's all about, gang. Uh, and this, this is a warning note, because one of the things this book does is it is a devastating criticism of conventional religion. Yes. Absolutely devastating. We'll get to that more later. But you see how he's getting things in right at the beginning when he's sneaking them by you. It's like getting the fastball past the, uh, the hitter when he's not looking. Yeah. He just threw a fastball down you, <laughs> past you. <laughs> okay. Now, Huck talks about his father. I didn't want to see him no more. He used to wail me when he was sober and he could get his hands on me. So I used to take to the woods most of the time when he was around. Well, about this time, he was found in the river, drowned about 12 miles above town, so people said. They judged it was him anyway. Said this rounded man was just his size and ragged and uncommon long hair, which is all like Pat. But they couldn't make nothing out of the face because it had been in the water so long it weren't much like a face at all. They said he was floating on his back in the water. They took him and buried him on the bank. But I weren't comfortable long because I happened to think of something. I knowed mighty well. Grounded man don't float on his back, on his face. So I knowed then that this weren't Pap. 
but a woman dressed up in man's clothes. So I was uncomfortable again. I judged the old man would turn up again by and by, as I wished he wouldn't. What happens in Chapter 4? He turns up. He turns up. The hairball oracle. Okay. Chapter 4 is the beginning of the actual action of the novel. When Huck's father returns, how does Huck know his father's returned? Um, well, he sees a footprint. Work. Right. He sees a footprint in the snow. And the footprint yeah. has a heel with a couple of cross nails on it. And that was the way he knows that his father has come back. Well, I was up every second sitting down the hill. I looked over my shoulder now and then, didn't see nobody. I went to Judge Thatcher's as quick as I could. And he said, oh, did you come for your interest? No, sir, I says. Is there some for me? Oh, yeah, half yearly in last night, over $150. Quite a fortune for you. Let me invest it with your 6000 because if you take it, you'll spend it. No, sir, I says. I don't want to spend it. I don't want it at all, nor the 6000 another. I want you to take it. I want to give it to you, 6000 and all. All right, why does Huck want to get rid of his money? Because he's afraid his father's going to take it or get it, taken. Mm-hmm. or get it somehow. But what is he doing when he gives away all his money? Which, of course, he can't really legally do. Uh, he can't say to him, I'll take the money. And, uh, you know, he's 13, he can't make a contract anyway. Uh, he doesn't lose the money, but he's trying to get rid of it. All right, well, why is he trying to do it? What is he doing when he does this? He's, what is he giving away? What do, what, do, what do all of us like to have? He's cutting he ties to society, being an outcast. Right, out- exactly, out- exactly. We all think of having money as being a, some, one of the goals of our society, is having a nice way of life and uh, having uh, you know, money. And he's the envy of the town because he's got money, he and Tom. But Huck doesn't want money because he's afraid of his father. So the first thing he does is to give away his stake in society, insofar as he can do it. First step in what I call the de-civilization of Huck Finn. S-I-V-I-L-I-Z-I-A. <laughs> Civilized with an S. First step is he gives away his money. All right. What comes next? Goes to see Jim, who has uh, a hairball. That was the Oracle. And if he gives Jim a quarter, uh, Jim sees a quarter is, is good money, and he says um, what the Oracle says. The Oracle says, Your old father don't know what he's going to do to you. Sometimes his speck will go away, then again he speck will stay. The best way is to rest easy and let an old man take his own way. There's two angels hovering around about him. One of them is white and shiny. The other one is black. The white one gets him to go right a little while. Then the black ones sail in and bust it all up. Body can't tell you which one going to fetch him to last. But you is all right. You're going to have considerable trouble in your life and considerable joy. Sometimes you're going to get hurt and sometimes you're going to get sick. But every time you is going to get well again. There's two gals flying about you in your life. One of them's light and the other one's dark. One is rich and the other's poor. You is going to marry the poor one first and the rich one by and by. He wants to keep away from water as much as you can and don't run no risk because it's down to bills that you're going to get hung. Mm-hmm. When I lit my candle and went up to my room that night, there sat Pat, 
in his own self. So chapter 4 begins Huck's uh, decivilization. Pap furthers it. What's Pap's game here? What does Pap do to Huck? In chapter four, you mean? Well, or he, he, he well, he kidnaps. I mean, takes some. Yeah, with him. Stop going to school. He and says, no school. Well, yeah, because he's Pap is jealous because Huck can read. Right. And starchy clothes. Hmm? You think you're a good deal of a big bug, don't you? Don't give me your lip. Put on considerable many frills since I've been away. I'll take the bag down a peg before I get done with it. You're educated too. They say you can read and write. Think you're better than your father now, don't you? Because he can't. I'll take it out of you. Who told you you might meddle with such highfalutin foolishness, eh? Who told you you could? The widow. She told me. The widow, eh? And who told the widow she could put her shovel about a thing that ain't none of her business? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. He gets Huck to stop going to school. And he says, first thing you know, you'll get religion too. I never see such a son. He took a little blue and yellow picture of some cows and a boy and says, what's that? Something they gave me for learning my lessons good. He tore it up and says, I'll give you something better. I'll give you a cowhide. Okay. So now he's dropping out of school. What's the next step? Chapter uh, five. Doesn't he continue to go to school for a while and just watch out for his he father? Stops going. He stops going pretty soon. Okay. But he stops. Well, what and happens in chapter 5? Well, I don't know when his father kidnaps him, takes him. That's right. Yeah. He watched me up for me one day in the spring, and he catched me and took me up the river yeah. about three miles on a skiff and crossed over to the Illinois side, where it was woody and there weren't no houses, but an old log hut in a place where the timber was so thick you couldn't find it if you didn't know where it was. So now he is physically taken from the town. Right. Not only is he physically taken from the town, he's physically taken from the state of Missouri. Where is he taken? To the state of Illinois. Why is that significant? What was the big um, difference? Is that a free state? Or That's right. That's right. Missouri was a slave state, and Illinois has always been a free state. So, step by step, Huck is being disengaged from the society that has adopted him. Society of St. Petersburg. First, he's done, he gives away his money. Second, his father physically takes him out of town, takes him out of the, out of school, takes him out of the city, takes him into out of the state into a free state in Illinois, and hides him out in the cabin. Okay. Huck can't stand being beaten up, and he's scared to death. One night, the the old man started to go after him with a knife when he was having the DTs. So, what's Huck, chapter, Huck do next? Chapter seven. Now, I he remember reading. Huh? What yes. is it? I think, I think he goes away and gets away from his father. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, this chapter, chapter 7, I had in a, a book when I was a little kid um, that was just this one chapter, excerpts from Huckleberry Finn. And I read it over and over and over again. It was such a tremendous chapter. And it really affected I wrote this, you know, I read this when I was like 10 years old. Um, Huck's escape from his father is a masterpiece. When you read it, he thought of everything. He leaves a false trail, That's right. uh, a couple of false trails. He hides the, you know, the saw. He uh, makes it seem as if there were robbers around. 
uh, he, he's just brilliant. He thinks of everything. And then he sails off in the canoe as his father is rowing back. Huck here does a, an escape that is a masterpiece. Compare this, if you will, oh. with the same place in, chapter, in the third section. The third section's got an escape, too, doesn't it? The third section, uh, Huck and Tom, with Tom the boss, of course, are going to have Jim escape from slavery. Oh, Is yeah, but... Compare that escape with this one. You can't. I mean, I, Huck really was a master at escape. Well, yeah, the point is that uh, Tom's is a burlesque. And that, that's it. it. It's a Tom, joke. Tom was terrible. The, your burlesque is good, yeah. Yeah. Tom, and, and you think of all, why is Tom doing it? We'll, we'll get to that later. But uh, now you see what I'm saying about parallel structure? Yes. In the, the seventh chapter of the first section, Huck gives his escape. In the 30th chapter of the last, um, uh, not 30, 38th, I think, whatever, third, uh, Tom has this escape, which is exactly parallel to Huck's, except it's a, it's a, a burlesque of a, of a real escape. Tom creates all the hazards, <laughs> and all, the, all the fall to roll, and right. he puts Jim through a mini hell. <laughs> Tom. Yes. All right. Now, we're coming up to an hour here. Uh, what do you want to do? I want, I want to see, Ira, if uh, Sherry, I know Sherry had some questions, and Bonnie, All right, questions. and we'll try yeah, a member of the audience when you're ready here. All right, let's do questions. Okay, Sherry? Um, I was wondering if, uh, two things, one, was Mark Twain an atheist? Do we know that? And did Mark Twain ever write anything about an adult, Huck or Tom? No, uh, he never took them to adults. Although there's a suggestion in Jim's oracle of what he might have been thinking. Uh, he originally planned to take the whole story into adulthood, but he never did. And I think probably rightly. Um, as to what was the first part of the quote? Well, he was an atheist. Um, whether uh, he was, was an atheist? He was what they called a free thinker. Uh, he did not believe in organized religion. So he was a deist? Uh, well, no, not a deist, but uh, he was, a, as I say, a free thinker. Uh, he was nominally uh, in the Presbyterian Church and then several other, ch but he wasn't ever really a uh, convinced Orthodox Christian. Okay. Uh, and he didn't believe in very much in Orthodox, and in, uh, what would you say, a formal religion at all, organized religion. His wife, well, supposedly uh, when he was courting, wrote her letter saying, what a good Christian I'm becoming for you. But by the time they got married, uh, after they got married, he converted her to being a free thinker. <laughs> uh, Bonnie, do you have a question? Well, I think that, uh, I guess the question, yeah, the question I have, I guess, is um, I think there's a lot about, um, in Mark Twain, about, uh, about, in a way, about morality, about goodness. Uh, oh, yeah. And, and temptation and how people are tempted. And in a way, I think he's saying, um, you know, people have moments when they're good and moments when they're bad and, and maybe moments when they're, in, when they're really in between. Um, says an awful lot about human nature and our weaknesses. And I guess what I was wondering is, did anybody get that at the time and, and um, how did uh, people respond to that? Well, very interesting about uh, his, his um, feelings about religion. 
uh, he kept them kind of undercover as much as he could. Uh, and in his autobiography, uh, and in other, other things that he wrote later in his life, he apparently wrote some things that he didn't want people to know about because he said, uh, wrote that in his will that they should never be published until he was dead for 100 years. Now, he's dead 100 years this year, and his unabridged autobiography is supposed to appear uh, this fall, the first part of it anyway. Now, there, the autobiography has been out for a long time, but it's an abridged version, edited. And now, the Mark Twain Project up at Berkeley is going to publish the unabridged autobiography, which will probably have some very critical statements about religion in it. But he wanted to hide it because he didn't want to hurt his sales. <laughs> and he also didn't want to hurt his family. Um, you know, he wanted uh, Clara to inherit. His daughter Clara was the only one of his children who survived him, and he wanted her to inherit uh, all the, uh, you know, the money. And he wanted the uh, books to continue selling to support her. And in fact, uh, uh, what's her name? Uh, Scandera, Miss Scandera, over at uh, Pomona College, has just published a book about. Mark Twain's relationship with his uh, secretary in the last years of his life, Isabel Lyon, whom he turned on, uh, and she argues that he did this to protect Clara because Clara had been having an affair with a married man and he didn't want the public to know about it. And uh, he turned on Isabel Lyon and uh, made a big fuss about her uh, to keep quiet the fact that Clara was having an affair. Okay, let's see if, if someone, Rick, if you can, if someone in the audience uh, has a question. Uh, so, members of the audience, let's see if you've got one. Identify yourself and speak up, please. Uh, Margaret in Maine, I was wondering if we could actually do another segment on this book because it is just so rich and there is just so much, and and uh, and I think we all have just such wonderful feelings about it. Can, could we, like, take a vote on that maybe, or how would that go over? Thank you. Yeah, well, Comment. you have just hardly even, we haven't yeah. even finished the first segment. Yes, we can do at least two more. Great. Hi, I'm ready to do it. Yeah. Uh, if you really want to go into detail, I'd be really happy to do it. Oh, we, it's just good. I do, I do. Uh, any more questions from the audience? Let's give them one more shot here. Um. Huck, when he runs away, goes to Jackson's Island, lands on the island, and on the island he encounters, of all people, Jim. Jim the slave. Now, uh, Jim in the second chapter is depicted as the absolute perfect image of the slave as the southern whites wanted to see slaves. He's not a human, not a man. He's a, something less than a, than a fully developed adult. You know, he's uh, the... the um, thing they used to say was, oh, blacks are childlike. Well, they were childlike because they weren't allowed to learn anything. <laughs> anyway, Jim is, uh, we see Jim in Chapter 2 as Tom sees him, and Tom patronizes him, and Huck goes along with whatever Tom does. Whenever Tom's around, Huck thinks Tom is the, uh, the beginning and ending of the world, and he doesn't realize that he's the better person. Anyway, well, Jim has run away. Why, is, why did Jim run away? Because he heard a slave trader had come to town and was talking with Miss Watson and offered Miss Watson a lot of money if she would sell him to the tra slave trader who would then sell him down south. 
and he didn't wait to find out what happened. So he went to the island, and he was hiding out there, and he didn't have a gun or anything. He was eating whatever he could catch, and he's always hungry. Well, they are on the island when a house, a two-story house that's been washed away by the river, washed away from the bank by the river, comes floating by, and they go out to see what they could get out of the house. And in the house, what kind of a house is it? Anybody catch on? Anybody I didn't. Guys? I, I remember the two-story house, but I don't remember what kind. Oh, well, you know, what I mean is what, what, what uh, was the house, obviously? What was in the house? Well, his father, right? Oh, well, yeah, but he doesn't know it's his father. No. Oh, but here, no. here's what I'm talking about. Okay. Um, let's see. Uh, oh, the furniture and such? We could see a bed, a table, two old chairs, and lots of things hanging around the floor, and clothes hanging against the wall. Uh, there was something lying on the floor, and Jim says, Hey, you, uh, he's dead, says Jim. And it's a dead man, and he's been shot in the back. I reckon he'd been dead two or three days. Don't look at his face, Huck. It's too ghastly. I didn't look at him at all. All right, now here's what's in the house. Heaps of old greasy cards scattered around on the floor, and old whiskey bottles, and a couple of masks made out of black cloth. And all over the walls, ignorance of the kind of words and pictures made with charcoal. Dirty, two dirty old calico dresses and a sunbonnet, and some women's underclothes hanging on the wall, and some men's clothes, too. We put the lot in the canoe. What kind of a house was that? A brothel? A brothel? Sure. That's what I would say. Sure. A brothel and thieves den. I actually would have thought of men's clothing hanging there making it a brothel, so I didn't really catch that when I read the book. Well, but remember, the thieves, it was a thieves, a den of thieves, too. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you, you know, the whiskey bottles in the car and the greasy cards and the <laughs> black masks. Uh, this right. is thieves, thieves and prostitutes. Mm-hmm. So that's the house of death that uh, that goes by. Now, Jim recognizes Huck's father, but mm-hmm. tells Huck not to look at his father, does, does not tell him it is his father. Why doesn't Jim tell Huck it's his father? Why does Jim let Huck... I thought he was one to spare him, didn't want to hurt him, or because he was in that uh, brothel type thing in the house? Well, I don't think that would have... Uh, okay, but uh, well, yeah, I, I really. think he didn't want to hurt him. He just didn't want him to know at that time. Well, there's another there's another reason. Think about it from Jim's point of view. Is it also because um, he feels that maybe it's more likely that he would have Huck on his side to help him and band together with him and stay with him and uh-huh. help him out if he had a reason? Uh, good. Uh-huh. He'd be the father. Can Jim, Jim trust Huck? Can, does Jim think he can trust any white person? No, but no. he can win and there. And what is Jim? Weekend. Jim is a runaway slave. There's a reward right. out for him. He wants right. somebody else who is running away. Well, more than that, if Huck knows that his father is dead, the only thing Huck's afraid of is his father. Huck could right. go back to town and oh. tell on Jim and get the reward. That's exactly get right. Sim- That's get what civilized I was to get with an S. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He might go so back. So Jim is doing what's best for Jim here. Oh. And he's just to him. Just as Huck uh, doesn't see blacks as human, Jim doesn't see whites as trustworthy. Yeah. I'd, I'd like to think a little bit he was trying to be nice. So well, did I, yeah, but no. Maybe, but he also has a very important, uh, you know, uh, agenda. interest of his own here. Is it his his own agenda? Right. Right. Because Huck would Jim go. Doesn't trust, would... Jim has no has never been able to trust any white person. He uh, obviously can't trust any white person. 
And that's what's been his whole life. All right, now what's in the next section? Chapter 10. Chapter 10, Huck kills a rattlesnake and puts the snake's body in Jim's bed. Oh, yeah. Right? He plays a, a Tom Sawyerish prank on Jim. Yeah. Except the snake's mate comes along and is in the, gets and curled bite, around bite the dead him. snake and bites Jim. Right. Mm -hmm. How does Huck react to that? Does he tell Jimmy that he put the snake there? No. No. He no, says... No. He says, and I'm going to quote... Okay. I weren't going to let Jim find out it was all my fault. Not if I could help it. He's a white yeah. man. Jim is black. Yeah. He isn't going to admit to anything. No. All right. And that's why chapter chapter 9, 10, and 11 make a trill, trilogy. Chapter mm -hmm. 9, Jim doesn't tr trust Huck. Chapter right. 10, Huck plays a prank on Jim. Chapter 11, Huck goes into town to see what's going on. And he meets Mrs. Judith Loftus. Oh, that's great. Yes. Yeah, that's a great sentence. What do we know about Mrs. Loftus? Um, well, do we know anything about her? She talks her way through this whole chapter. We know exactly really. what kind of a person she is. But all we know about her is that she's about 40 years old. That's the only descriptive language we have. Is this the one where he, Huck was dressed as oh, a girl? Oh, he catches her being a girl. Yeah, he was very he smart. Huck dresses up he's as a girl, and she, so, yeah. she picks she's it up. Very, very observant, him. very smart. Observant. Um, right. right. Her and she's observant in other ways, too. She's the, she's the one who saw smoke on the island and told her husband to go get... Uh, that dog. She the runaway slave is on the island. Yeah. yeah she was the so brain. This is a boy when she sees one. This is Loftus is a dangerous person. Yes, and Jim said that later. He said, that old lady would have caught us, you know. Had the interesting thing here, though, is the way Twain puts her character, tells us about her. He doesn't tell us anything about her. She talks everything about herself. Now, I'm yeah. going to ask you something about Pap. Everybody who reads this book, anybody who reads this book, can never forget Pap, right? Right. The 43 chapters in Huckleberry Finn, how many chapters does, uh, does uh, Pap appear in? Maybe two or three. That's it. Two and a half. Uh, mm -hmm. yeah. And yet, Pap is absolutely unforgettable. Oh, and yes. we have almost no description of him either. No. Except what he says. We have a little bit about him. But what he says, the way he talks, is what establishes him as an incredible character. Now, the long, the long speech that um, uh, he has in, uh, what chapter is it? Let's see. Um, I think it's chapter, yeah, chapter 6, Pap's long speech. It goes on for several pages. It talks about the government and, uh, yeah. oh, oh, yes. That's Unbelievable. Absolutely. Brilliant. Just brilliant. I can't think of anything as good as that anywhere in American literature or sustained or as long as he does it. Wow. All right, so at the end of Chapter 11, uh, what's the title of Chapter 11? Don't know. I'm sorry. We don't They're know. after us. I... Oh. We jumped in the canoe and dug out for our place a mile and a half after we first set a, 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 a fire to make them think at the other end of the island. Right. They are. They're after us. And I landed and stopped, stopped the timber and up to the ridge and into the cavern, and Jim was there, sound asleep on the ground. I roused him out, and I says, get up and hump yourself, Jim. Ain't a minute to lose. They're after yeah. us. Yep. <laughs> I remember now I do. All right. Now, wait a minute. Why is that significant? Well, because now Jim knows he can trust Huck. Huck, well, not, not quite. Not, not, not quite, quite, but, but you're a... 
Why does connected. he say they're after us? He says that. Because I, he wants them to be bound together. They're well, They're both I outcasts. Think, yeah, he's, he's, but he doesn't have to be an outcast. He doesn't know his no, father He doesn't dead. know? Yeah. He doesn't know. But the town thinks he's dead. The town doesn't yeah, have yeah. to hug. Oh, oh, yeah. That's yeah. The town thinks he's dead because he did such a marvelous job with the escape. <laughs> yeah. But what he, he wants, he's running away. He wants to get away from the town because he's worried. And he throws in his lot with the other outcast, Jim. Right. Right. Almost without thinking about it. Probably without thinking about it. But this Wait. is the beginning of the relationship between Huck okay. and Jim. Significantly, it can only start after they have both expressed uh, the way they uh, don't trust each other. And it can only start when they're leaving the area of the town. They're already out of the town. They're already out of Illinois. They're in, a, uh, in the island, which is uninhabited. Talk about going outside society. He yeah. went from town society to uh, wilderness society to no society. No society. And now they're leaving altogether. They're leaving the shore. Now, uh, they're leaving the island. Now, in this book, the land is set against the river. The river is pristine, eternal, yeah. uh, right. not governed by the laws of, of men, and is always cleansing the evils of, the, of uh, society. What's got the house? What got the, uh, the house? The river got it. River. What is yeah. going to get the steamboat with the, with the uh, murder on the it? Fog. The, river. the river's going to get it. What's going to get uh, down, the, down the river a piece? What's going to get this terrible town that, uh, that the, the river's eating at it? Yeah, the river. The river becomes a character in the book. Mm-hmm. Passive silent, eternal, powerful, avenging. The river is, the river is, when they're on the river, it's Eden. The raft is Eden, at least at the beginning, until it gets corrupted by the king of the duke. Yeah, the, the shore is evil, human yeah. society. All right, that's the first, uh, the first oh. 11 chapters of Huckleberry Finn. When you want to do the next, the next 20 chapters, give me a ring. I'll call you. Don't worry. And Ira, thank you so much. And thank and this, you, ladies. And this thank you, Ira. Really interesting. Thank you, Ira. Are there jaws oh. hanging down? Oh yes, I'm breathless. <laughs> I, I I can't believe this. This is such a learning, a great learning experience. I mean that. This is just great. It is a fabulous, fabulous book. It really is. I will, Unbelievably good. Right. Ira, one thing I wanted to say is uh, when you were talking about structure. Yeah. of a novel, um, what I think one of the uh, ways to really look at it, too, is uh, in your mind, uh, picture a house with rooms, sections. Yeah. And, and I think that, that also helps for people that okay. don't really think about now, structure that much. Yeah. Before our next one. session, go through the structure of the middle 20 chapters okay. and see what subsections you can find and how they relate to each other. We'll do it. I've got that. And look, now look, I'm going to tip you off to something else. One thing that Twain does in this book is he has three landmarks in the course of the book where important things happen. And they are spaced at the one-third mark, the two-thirds mark, and the center. And I want you to look for what is, you know, what important events or important things happen 
at about the one-third mark, and that would be, what, 15 chapters, 14, yeah. 15 chapters, uh, what crucial things happen at the two-thirds, or actually it's, it's, almost, yeah, it's almost exactly two-thirds, chapter 31, and what happens in the center of the book. Remember last time I talked about the, how important the center is? Yeah. What occupies the center of Huckleberry Finn? What's in the center of this book? Things to look for for next time. All right. Thank you so much, Ira. We'll be in touch. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Bye now. Good night.